Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured with Sam and Hank. Um, today, we are talking about the Council of Nicaea. This is part of our Church Father series, although this is our first episode where we're not talking about any particular person. But the Council of Nicaea is so important and fundamental as an event in the history of Christianity and the church. And it brings together so many of the characters that we have been talking about that it probably deserves its own episode. So that's what we're doing. We're going to talk about the people who were there, um, what they decided, and the creed that came out of it. But we're not just going to focus just on the the Aryan uh, uh, anti-Aryan piece. We'll talk about the other things that happened too. There was more discussions than just that. And the first thing that I want to say is that um, St. Nicholas did not slap Arius at the Council of Nicaea. You might be seeing memes going around this time of year where St. Nicholas, the person who uh, gets turned into Santa Claus, slaps the heretic Arius. There is no historical evidence that that happened at the Council of Nicaea. So if that's all you came in to listen for, uh, you can be satisfied. But if you want more detail than that, we can get going. Um, so, uh, Hank, do you want to start us off maybe talking about Oisius of Cordoba? Most people don't know who Oisius of Cordoba is, but he is a very long-lived bishop, lived for 102 years. Um, he was bishop, obviously, Cordoba of Spain. He probably was uh, personally persecuted, and he was given the title confessor because of the persecution. The important part here, he was an early Christian friend of Constantine, and some sources say that he might have helped interpret Constantine's vision on the Milvian Bridge. When Constantine professed a belief in Jesus and started seeing the Arian heresy and other things, he asked Hoysus to investigate. Now, I want you to know, at that time, Hoysus was about 68 years old. Yeah. So he wasn't a young man. Right. Okay. So uh, Constantine's sending him to Alexandria to give him a report on the state of this so-called Arian controversy, uh, because Hoysius is probably the church person that he trusts and knows the best. And so his, his closeness to Constantine is very important to the story. And he is also a sympathetic to the anti-Arians. Um, it's unclear exactly if this is for theological reasons or if it's because he just sort of trusts bishops and is sort of pro-establishment, but it seems like theologically himself, he does not like the Arian positions and will be one of the main leaders of why the council comes to an anti-Arian conclusion is because of his leadership and his guidance and his strong stance against Arianism. Um, although later on, because he lives, you know, he's like something like, uh, you know, almost 70 at the Council of Nicaea, he will live for another 30 years and he will be at some of the Arian councils that happen after the Council of Nicaea, including a compromise council in 357 AD that we'll cover eventually. Um, and so he, he is willing to compromise with Arians later in his life, but at the Council of Nicaea, it seems like he's leading in an anti-Arian direction. And because of his prominence, that, that I think helps drive the direction of the council. Go ahead. And he, uh, um, in the Council of Antioch, he, uh, he uh, kicked out he, the, the council uh, excommunicated Eusebius of Cicerera. Right. So in, in like the couple months right before the Council of Nicaea, there was sort of a mini council to deal with uh, some of the Arian supporters. We talked about this when we did the biography of Eusebius. And uh, Eusebius uh, gets excommunicated. Eusebius of Caesarea gets excommunicated by this mini council, and that was led by Oisius of Cordoba. So Oisius and Eusebius might have had some bad blood coming into uh, the Council of Nicaea because that was only a couple months right before. Which is interesting because, of course, Eusebius at the Council of Nicaea, and we could talk about him for a brief moment because we've spent quite a bit of time on him. He basically intimates an Arian position, loses at the Council of Nicaea and says, oh, no, 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 when he goes back, I'm all, all on board on this. Right. Okay. So 
and of course, as we've discussed before, becomes the great biographer and almost press secretary for Constantine. Yeah, or hagiographer slash propagandist is is almost the right word for uh, Eusebius of Caesarea's level of pro-Constantine. But yeah, we we have a a whole episode on Eusebius, so people can go back and watch that. But it's notable that when Arius first started getting in trouble with his own bishop in Alexandria in about 320 AD, one of the first people that Arius reaches out to is Eusebius of Caesarea. And he actually flees to Eusebius of Caesarea when things start getting really hairy. Um, and there's starting to be violence in the streets and stuff like that. He takes refuge in Caesarea. So Eusebius is out and out as a pro-Arian supporter, but yet nevertheless, uh, Constantine invites him to give sort of the opening address at the Council of Nicaea. So Constantine's motivations are probably not to be either too Arian or too anti-Arian, but to kind of show respect for both sides and hopefully lead to a peaceful and um, unity granting uh, resolution at the council. So he's kind of giving favors to both sides. So even though Eusebius had been excommunicated three or four months right before the council, uh, Constantine invites him to give the opening address. So Eusebius wasn't very politically tactful. Uh, He was more of a scholar and a historian than he was a tactician. But he does come home from the council, even though he had been a notable Arian or an Arius supporter, saying, actually, this creed just says what we've been saying all along and there's nothing to worry about it. <laughs> so so it, it goes to show that even though this council will come to an anti-Arian conclusion in its creed, many of the Arian supporters actually are on board with the council, either because they're too scared to say no or because they want to get along, or because they can weasel their way around the words of the creed to actually have it mean what they want it to mean anyway. We have another Eusebius of Nicomedia, who's there. Now, before Constantinople becomes the capital of the Eastern Empire, Nicomedia was, he has close ties to Constantine's family members and, and might even be a distant relation. Unlike Eusebius of Caesarea, Eusebius of Nicomedia was not a peacemaker. He was a strong partisan. He was the real leader of the Arians. Because of this, he gets banished from the royal family. Yes. After So Eusebius of Nicomedia, even though he's probably the strongest Arian supporter and actually something more like the leader of the Arians, because Arius was only a presbyter. He was only a priest, right? So he actually didn't have... Uh, any rank or vote at the council. Arius was at the council, but he didn't really have any influence himself. Eusebius and Nicomedia was sort of like the the most powerful bishop that was pro-Arian. And after the council, uh, he admits to Constantine that he only signed on to the creed for fear of you, Constantine. And Constantine does not appreciate this and gets him banished. But then he gets unbanished because one of the, I think, Constantine's sister, Constantia, says that she was healed through a miracle by Eusebius and Nicomedia. So then Constantine uh, invites him back. And actually, at the end of his life, Constantine has a deathbed baptism. And the person who officiates the deathbed baptism is Eusebius and Nicomedia, the staunch Arian. And so after the Council of Nicaea, there will be a series of Arian um, emperors and a series of Arian councils. And that is often, that is mostly due to Eusebius and Nicomedia being such a strong influence on the royal family and often being like the Christian tutor of the couple next generations of emperors and their family. So when the tide moves in favor of the Arians over the next couple decades after the Council of Nicaea, it's often due to his leadership. So in 318, Alexander is teaching that the father, uh, the strong unity between the father and son Um, He banishes Arius in 318. Arius quickly reaches out to his allies. Alexander does the same. They gather counsel to condemn Arius. And then, of course, it starts filtering up to Constantine. So Constantine writes to Alexander and Arius basically saying, get along in 324. Knock it off. 
Well, a couple more things about Alexander is it seems quite likely, although there was some slight mixing of accounts in the historical record, I think it's probably most likely that he brings with him a young assistant named Athanasius. So Athanasius is most My likely hero. probably at the Council of Nicaea, but Athanasius would be a young man at this time. He would be in his like early to mid-20s at the Council of Nicaea. And so Athanasius is not himself a important player. He is an assistant to the important player, which is Alexander of Alexandria, who's the right. Bishop of Alexandria. And as we'll cover in the, in the canons, there are three kind of super bishops in the church at this time. The Bishop of Rome is a super bishop. The Bishop of Antioch is a super bishop. And the Bishop of Alexandria is a super bishop. And they're each granted extraordinary powers and jurisdictions by the canons of this council. So when it comes to actual political sway, Alexander is one of the most powerful bishops there. And he is obviously a extremely staunch anti-Aryan, the, the staunchest of staunch anti-Aryans, and he will sort of seemingly ally with Oisius of Cordoba to lead the council in a direction to condemn Arius. And so he's a, a very important person there at the council. Although uh, Constantine was a little bit grumpy with just the whole Arian situation at all for being too uh, violent, for being too divisive, and for not getting along. So it could be that Constantine is a little bit grumpy with Alexander because he writes him some sternly worded letters to just, you know, get along. But nevertheless, Alexander of Alexandria is one of the most powerful and important people there. And the most powerful person there that's not a bishop is Arius himself, right? So Arius is at this council and he's not, not a bishop. He's only a presbyter, a priest. And so he had been, we, we had a whole episode on him. So I would encourage anyone who wants more detail on Arius himself to go back and listen to it. But he had been born somewhere in the 250s in Libya. Don't know much about him really, uh, but he was clearly highly educated, very philosophically sophisticated. And he becomes a priest of probably like the most important church in Alexandria. You can imagine there being like the, the downtown central hip district of Alexandria that has like, you know, the, the most uh, educated priest in it. And that, that's who Arius is. And probably in 313 AD, when Alexander becomes bishop, it might have been the case that Arius had been one of the competitors to become bishop at that time. And that part of what's lurking behind the Arian controversy is a professional rivalry between Arius and Alexander, who had both wanted to become Bishop of Alexandria, but Alexander gets the job. And so, as we already mentioned, they start arguing about theology in about 318 AD. It sort of erupts into a full-blown controversy in 320 AD, and uh, Arius has been having to hide, or not hide, but live in exile basically in Caesarea for a little while laying low until this, he's hoping that this council will vindicate him. Because previously, Constantine had sent a letter to uh, Alexandria saying, hey, this Aries guy seems okay to me, you know, and readmit him, stop arguing about all this nonsense. So Arius might have a reasonable hope that that could be the resolution of this council, is that they produce a creed that's agreeable to him, and then he is ordered to be readmitted to his uh, communion back at his church, and then he gets his job back. That's probably what Arius is hoping for. He's not hoping probably to have his opposite side get excommunicated. He's probably just hoping to get unexcommunicated. Um, and then do you want to talk about uh, the big man himself, uh, the man in purple? We've talked about Constantine before. He is an underrated presence at the Council of Nicaea. I sort of compare him, if you have the President of the United States at a council, I don't care who's doing all the talking, at the end of the day, the President of the United States is going to have a, he will, he will have a say. And I think we forget that Constantine did have a say. Uh, we have a term called concepts, consubstantial with the father that we talked about before. He's looking for unity. He wants this council to be, I think the thing he wants out of this council, quite frankly, is can we all just get along? Mm -hmm. I've got an empire 
to manage. And the reason that one of the reasons I probably became, became a Christian was I found that Christianity would help me manage this empire a lot better. And you're you're not helping me here. Right. We actually have a quote from Constantine uh, that basically explains his motivation for the council. Um, I'll read that quote. My design then was first to bring the various beliefs formed by all nations about God to a condition of settled uniformity. Secondly, I hope to restore to health the civil liberties of the empire, then suffering under the malignant power of an angry tyrant. Keeping these objects in view, I sought to accomplish the one by thought, <coughs> which is hidden from the eye, while the other I tried to rectify by the power of military authority. For I was aware that if I should succeed in establishing, according to my hopes, a common harmony of sentiment among all the servants of God, the general course of affairs would also experience a change corresponding to the pious desires of all. So basically what he's saying is I want to get the church into a state of settled uniformity. He's not doing this with force. He's doing this with conversation, with uh, dialogue, and with a strong belief that in the right conditions, the truth will prevail, that people will come to the right decisions, and that this council will be a means of unifying the pious members of Christianity, right, the leaders of the church, and that will then spread to his empire and inaugurate a new era of religious conformity. And he is bringing an end to um, persecution. Um, his, when he talks about the angry tyrant, he's talking about Lucinius, who had been his main rival before he beat uh, Lucinius in a battle. So uh, emperor, the Emperor Constantine unites the empire finally in 324 AD by beating his rival and his and his uh, rival's main assistant in a battle in 324. In 325, so at, at this battle, Lucinius agrees to surrender if Constantine will promise him uh, safety. And so Constantine promises Lucinius and his assistant safety and uh, in Thessalonica. And then the next year, Constantine brings some charges that might not be true that Lucinius had been plotting his overthrow and then hangs him <laughs> and his assistant. So uh, the, the promise of safety only lasted about one year. So Constantine, even though he's organizing this Council of Nicaea, the same year he organizes the Council of Nicaea, he probably brings about perhaps false charges against his former rival to get him hanged. And even like the next year, he kills his son, who I think was even like his stepson, or it was, I forget the relation, but he had some family relation to his son and kills him. So, you know, he does the thing that all emperors have to do when they get in charge is make sure there's no rivals uh, and do it, you know, quietly, slowly, and, you know, not try and draw too much attention to that, to that being what you're doing. So that's happening in the background. Um, so when he talks about not using force, um, not using the force of an angry tyrant, Lucinius had ushered in the last persecution of Christianity. So we know that Constantine issued the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, which sort of made Christianity an accepted religion. But Constantine really only had power at that point in the western part of the empire. Lucinius was in charge of the eastern part. And so Lucinius still has one last persecution in the eastern part of the empire right before Constantine beats him. So some of the things that they deal with at the Council of Nicaea is some of the people who had lapsed under persecution under Lucinius's persecution the year before or the couple years before the council. So when he's talking about the evil tyrant who used persecution, that's who, that's who he means. And so he brought him to an end in more ways than one. Constantine was just a very good practitioner of hardball politics. Constantine is an amazing, on the one hand, he, he believes in the freedom of conscience. He believes that people, if they're allowed the chance to seek after the truth, that the truth will prevail and that it is immoral and wrong to use force to try and change people's minds. But it's not immoral or wrong to use force to end people's lives if they're a political rival. <laughs> Unity will be achieved. Unity of mind is achieved through freedom and through speaking. Unity of empire is achieved through brute military force, right? And he is 
he, he is perfectly fine using both of those things in their appropriate contexts. That's the kind of man he was. Makes him for, to be a very complicated character. So let's now, before we talk about the creed or before we talk about Arius, let's talk about some of the things that they actually decided at the council. Because when we talk about the council in modern day, we almost exclusively focus on the Arian controversy, but that was by no means all that they had to talk about. They had a lot of business to cover. So the first canon, the first thing that the Council of Nicaea decides is that people who make themselves eunuchs cannot become bishops. Uh, I'm not sure if most people are aware of that, but that was the first thing decided at the Council of Nicaea. The most urgent and pressing piece of business was eunuchs. Um, but if you are a eunuch for a medical reason or a eunuch by not by choice, as if someone else had made you a eunuch, you're allowed to become a bishop. But if you had eunuch, unicized yourself, you're not allowed to become a bishop. And at this point, it's it, you're actually allowed to be married, I believe, and be a bishop. Um, the rules uh, that would enforce clerical celibacy, either at the level of presbyter or bishop, have not yet been enforced. But you can still see that there is this ideal of celibacy that is held up as what probably a bishop should be. But you can't be celibate by um, force. You have to be celibate by voluntary self-control and will. And so that's that's sort of what's going on here. Um, although, you know, hey, becoming making yourself a eunuch is becoming popular again for some reason. Oh, boy. That, but that might become more relevant again than it's been for a long time. Second canon is basically you can't rush ordinations, right? Uh, people have to have been a Christian for a while before they be, can become a bishop. This had probably been more of a problem under times of persecution, right? If during persecution your bishop gets executed, uh, then you need to appoint someone quickly and you might not have good candidates, so you kind of rush someone into the office. This basically says there needs to be a certain amount of time of someone having been baptized before they can be uh, a presbyter or bishop. Actually, it was a, a problem in part of the issue of the Reformation was you'd have the king would have two sons or a prince well the first son is going to get the kingdom what do we do about the second son and so they'd rush an ordination so the second son would become a priest one day and the next day he'd become a bishop so right there what you were seeing in the church is they were breaking this canon at nicaea which was no no no, no rushing why was that for discernment is this the person is this person the right person to be a bishop actually i i have I think that's a, a fine idea. That, that seems fine to me, too. I don't object with that one. Um, number three, male church officials cannot live with female versions except if they're their own family members. So basically, you can't be a presbyter or a bishop and in your same house have nuns that live under your same roof unless they're like your sister, your mother, or your aunt, or something like that. That's sort of, that's sort of a slap at... Uh... Paul of Samosata. It is a slap at Paul of Samosata because Paul of Samosata had done that. And that was one of the accusations against him is that, hey, that looks a little suspicious if, you know, the bishop is living with the nuns. There was never any official accusation against him. It was just one of those things that raised an eyebrow. So this is, you know, uh, making that illegal. Number four, you need at least three bishops from the province to ordain a new bishop. Right. So that that's, again, making sure that people become bishop through a good proper means. Right. You can't rush someone into the office of bishop and you need to have at least three other bishops there uh, to, to uh, ordain a new bishop. So just kind of streamlining and making official some of these things. Um, number five, excommunicated persons can't be readmitted elsewhere. Right. So if you get excommunicated in one uh, jurisdiction, you can't just leave and go to a different jurisdiction and be readmitted to communion. Excommunications need to be respected throughout the whole church. And this is a slap against Arius. And what happened with Origen 100 years earlier? Right. Yes. So uh, this is, you can definitely imagine Alexander of Alexandria being the one who is dr the driving force behind that canon. Hey, I excommunicated Arius and Eusebius over there 
just let him right into his church with open arms. You can't do that sort of thing. You have to respect my authority. He's my priest. If I excommunicate him, you all have to listen to that. So you can imagine that that's exactly where that canon is coming from. And so you can kind of also see a general theme that a lot of these canons are trying to unite the empire. And instead of there being completely separate churches with completely separate rules and completely separate operating procedures all over the empire, unifying the thing and making sure that they're all working in coordination and concert with each other instead of being independent fiefdoms, basically, right? That's a common theme for a lot of the canons. All right, number six, there are three super bishops, the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Alexandria, and the Bishop of Antioch. And these bishops have jurisdiction over the bishops in their area. Um, although one thing that should be noted is while Rome is given a super bishop, the Roman bishop does not have authority over the Bishop of Alexandria or, or over the Bishop of Antioch. They are at the same level. So uh, is there a pope? Kind of but not in the same supreme position that the Pope enjoys now. Revelation continues to unfold. Well, I mean, what's interesting and sad is that all three of these bishops are now not in communion with each other, right? The bishop, the Egyptian church, the Coptic church, will get excommunicated at the Council of Chalcedon, right? And they are still out of communion with either the Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholics. And then, of course, the great schism between the Eastern Orthodox and the um, Latin Church will happen a thousand years later, or well, 700 years after this council. And so neither Rome nor Alexandria nor Alexandria nor Antioch are in communion with each other anymore, but they're still important bishoprics. So Rome is in charge of its, uh, its own territories, I guess, still. Number seven, the Bishop of Jerusalem gets special mention as having the next place of honor after these three bishops, but he doesn't have a lot of important role because Jerusalem had been kind of more or less destroyed by the Romans after the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s. So Jerusalem does not have a very large population, um, unlike the other three cities that are almost like a million people apiece. Jerusalem might be like 10,000 people or something like that. But still, the historical memory of the importance of the Bishop of Jerusalem going back to the early days of the church is it, it's given a nod to that historical importance, but it doesn't have the same power as the three super bishops. So that's basically what Canaan number seven said. It does tell you something even about the early, very early church, right? History was very important to the early mm -hmm. church, which... I find interesting, at least in the United States of America, that part of the church doesn't have, has no idea. That's why we're here, Sam. We have to give the Protestant church in America the history that is so well deserved. Yeah, and to remind it that the Bishop of Rome doesn't have authority over the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> but actually, hey, I bet a lot of uh, my American dispensationalist friends would be perfectly happy if the Bishop of Jerusalem were in charge. They would probably like that. Number eight, members of the Novation Schism can join the Catholic Church. And they do call themselves the Catholic and uh, Apostolic Church, right? When in the Council of Nicaea, when they refer to themselves, they call themselves the Catholic and Apostolic Church. So it is not anachronistic to call it the Catholic Church at this point. Catholic obviously comes from the Greek word that means universal, right? So we could call them the universalists, right? Or is that, no, that's not what, that word means something else nowadays. But anyway, um, so anyway, when I'm saying the Catholic Church. Well, but basically we're not Unitarians or universalists. Well, we'll get to the creed in a second, and it looks almost Unitarian to me. Almost. I, almost. All right. So um, anyway. You're reaching there, Sam. Go ahead members of the Novation Schism, and we talked about Novation a couple episodes ago. Novation was basically a, a, a guy who formed a schismatic branch of the Roman church. There had been a severe persecution, and basically every time after there's a severe persecution, part of the church is like, all right, we need to be gracious and forgiving to the people who lapsed under 
uh, persecution and let them back in. And then there's some hardliners who had endured the persecution bravely like, no, we can't let those traitors back into our church. Only people who stood up to the Roman Empire are allowed in our church, right? And basically that happens almost every time there's a severe persecution. Novationism had been one of those hardline churches that formed in Rome around 250 AD. And it actually had been spreading throughout the empire. You know, you could kind of think of them as almost like almost every church has there's like a liberal wing, a conservative wing and like a fundamentalist wing. Right. Almost every church has this. And so you can think of the novationists as being like a fundamentalist kind of schism. Right. But they did believe basically in what the doctrine of the quote unquote Trinity was at this point in time. So they didn't have theological disagreements with the church. They mainly just had practical disagreements about the readmission of people who lapse under persecution. So the Council of Nicaea decides that people who belong to the Novation Schism can join the Catholic Church without rebaptism. Clergy can retain their positions unless they're a bishop, in which case they need to subordinate themselves to the Catholic bishop and become a presbyter again. But they do not need to get rebaptized. And in a couple canons, we will talk about the uh, the Paul Samosata schism, and they do need to get rebaptized. So it's it, it's interesting to note that the Novation schism does not require rebaptism to be admitted; they just require submission, right? But the Paul Samosata Paul of Samosata Paul of Samosata schism does require rebaptism. We'll get to that in a couple more canons, right? All right. Any clergy that gets re-examined and doesn't meet the above criteria should be removed, blah, blah, blah. Ten, any clergy who lapsed shall be deposed. So the Council of Nicaea is actually taking kind of a hard line on lapsed clergy, right? So this is actually an interesting thing, is that other councils before and after will take a softer line on lapsed clergy, but the Council of Nicaea actually takes a pretty hard line on lapsed clergy that they need to be deposed from their office. So if they had given in to persecution, made a sacrifice to the emperor, renounced Christ or something like that, even if they were being tortured, right, they need to be removed from their office. So it's actually a relatively hard line on that question. Canon 11, laymen who gave in to persecution easily, that is not under, um, not under painful or uh, torturous. Uh, if, you, if you gave in and you weren't even tortured, right, but you're a lay person, you have to go through a 12-year penance <laughs> to get readmitted to communion. And that was considered somewhat generous <laughs> at this time. Also, it should be noted the idea of penance, just Protestants, you know, the idea of penance was perfectly well established by this important time. It's not like the Council of Nicaea is inventing penance. This was a perfectly regular procedure. So it, this was not a new thing when they're assigning penance for people to get readmitted to communion. And... Just to stop there for a second, whatever we think of 12 years of penance, right? We could take a modern day theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who speaks about cheap grace. The church in its proper teachings have taught that grace is not cheap. It costs our Lord everything. And if we're basic, basically adhering to a cheap grace theology, God forgives me, I can go back and do what I'm doing. And he'll just forgive me again. I think that the early church speaks very harshly about that. Right, that, that's true. So inside a church at this time, there would have been sort of like uh, four or maybe even five layers of hierarchy. There were people who were just listeners, right, who would come and hear the sermon and were just sort of inquiring. They were kicking kicking the, the tires of Christianity, as I've heard churches say it before, right? People just inquiring. And then there were catechumens who were going to catechesis class, right, who were learning to be a Christian, but were not yet baptized. Then there were baptized people who were allowed to pray, but they were not participating in communion. Maybe they had some reason why they weren't allowed to participate in communion. So baptized non-communicants. And then there was communicants, right? And then there, you could maybe even add an extra layer, which would have been like celibate people, like virgins and uh, celibate priests and clergy and stuff like that. So there's this kind of like four slash five fold hierarchy of how close you were to the church. 
And so basically what happens to someone who had been in communion who lapsed is they get kicked back down to the first ring of the hierarchy, have to spend three years there or four years there, have to spend four years at the next layer, <clears throat> have to spend four years at the next layer. And that's why it's 12 years, right? So you have to go back up the ladder to get readmitted to communion. Another thing that this shows is they took communion very, very seriously, right? Only very holy people who are in full cooperation and full moral behavior with the church were allowed to take communion. So it was that was a very sacred high honor in the church at this point in time. And I would also say, I don't see much sign of there having been very much child baptism at this point. Baptism, although it's not for the reason that Protestants would give, right? I think that the baptism practices of the church at this period should make both the Catholics and the Protestants a little bit uncomfortable because Protestants are like, hey, Hank, you gave your altar call last Sunday. Want to get baptized? Oh, great. Yeah, you want to get baptized? Boom, we'll do it right now. Okay, now you can take communion, right? But the, <clears throat> the church at this time required years of catechesis and then even years of being in the church to prove that you were someone who is worthy to take communion. And if you're taking communion, you're held to in a very high moral standard, right? And so um, there, there's this, it's, it's just hardcore. I, get, I don't know how else to say it, but, but the church had a very hardcore structure at this point in time. And you can see that reflected in these canons yeah. at the Council of Nicaea. Well, and you see, still see, right? If you're an adult and you want to become a cat, cat, Catholic, your catechesis is a year, okay? Which in the West is a long time. A pastor friend of mine once said, who was from the South, he goes, everybody in the South has a Jesus moment. They say, I see Jesus, they get dumped, okay? Right, maybe even a couple times just to be just Right, to just, be safe. To, you know, for fire insurance purposes. The early church would have looked at something like that and said, whoa, slow down there. Okay. Remember, people will look and say, well, Cornelius got baptized very quickly, except he was a God-fearer before he got baptized. Yeah, well, and also the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized the same day, right? Right. So in the book of Acts, there, I think, are even more than a couple examples of that, of people who seem to go from, I believe in Jesus, to getting baptized immediately to receiving the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. But by the church, the church at this point had a very slow, very slow, thorough prove yourself process to become someone who could be in full communion with the church. Because of what they hated the most, which was when there was prosecution, persecution, people left. That's why you have these penance. Right. OK. Um, so um, and then what penance for left? Yeah, Christians who fought in Lucidius' army are assigned penance to, to readmit to communion. That's probably both the bishop and Constantine saying, hey, how can we have unity? And what's also interesting is that this sort of con uh, condemns Christians who fight in the army, which is weird because one of the tensions, early Christianity up until this point had placed a very high level on pacifism. And that we've seen this come up multiple times, especially in Tertullian and other authors that we've looked at, that the Christians were not allowed to fight in the army. And like there was some debate, okay, well, what if you're the sort of soldier who's basically just a glorified security guard and that's your day job and you don't go around killing people, you're in the army, but you're really just like stationed at the library or something, right? Could such a person be a Christian? And some people were like, no. And some people were like, well, yeah, that's fine. And because the, the line between security guard and police officer and member of the army was not distinct like it is in our day. And so some soldiers weren't out there fighting on the front lines. And so some Christians are like, hey, well, if you don't actually fight for a living, you can be a Christian. And some are like, no, you, if you're in the army at all, you can't be a Christian, right? And so they had a very high emphasis on pacifism. And what's interesting is you can still see this at the Council of Nicaea, but this will become uncomfortable for a Christian empire as Christianity becomes a majority or an overwhelming majority of the population because you'll still need an army. But oftentimes, even in the early part of Christianity, if you were a soldier and you were a Christian and you went and you fought in a war, you would come back and have to do penance before you could be readmitted to communion because that was like an unclean activity. So there's a big difference between 
you know, pre, uh, pre-empirical Christianity, no, no violence, um, early empirical Christianity, violence, but it's bad. And then by the time we get to the Crusades, you know, fighting a crusade is, is an act of indulgence for your family and a way of guaranteeing your faith. And we even have things like the Patriarch of Moscow currently saying, hey, if you go fight in Ukraine, all of your sins will be forgiven and you're assured, a, you know, a heavenly reward, which is very different than even the status quo at the Council of Nicaea, which still sort of frowns upon violence and views it as something that you need to go through penance to be washed clean of. Maybe Luke can help us understand the Patriarch of Moscow's position. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Number 13, if someone is not uh, in communion and is about to die, they can be given communion as a last rite. Um, so if imagine if you're one of the people who's been baptized and you're a prayer, but not a communicant, if you're on your deathbed, you can be given communion as a last rite. Um, but if a person revives, <laughs> then they then they have to go back to being just a prayer person. <laughs> Right. It's not like if they hadn't earned communion and they're on their deathbed and they get given this exceptional last rite, but then they get better. They, they're in communion. Now they have to go back to the previous status that they were in. Right. All all of this being more evidence of what I said, they took communion extremely, extremely seriously. So if you're a catechumen who lapses, right, if you're a catechumen who gave in to persecution, you have to get three years of penance. Right. You go down to the next level right, which is a hearer. So if you are in catechesis and you lapse during persecution, boom, you're knocked down to the lower rung of being a hearer again. You have to be there for three years before you can start your catechesis. Again, they take this all very seriously. You can't, a priest cannot move around from city to city. Again, this is criticizing Arius, right, who had moved from Alexandria to Caesarea. And clergy can't move from church to church without approval of their bishop. Which which still is in effect today. A priest in the Joliet Diocese, where I belong, right? I say, you know, the, this, this Wheaton gig has been really good, but I, I, I want to head to Hinsdale where the real money is, okay? The bishop calls the shots um, on who serves where. Clergy cannot loan money at interest, so no usury among the clergy. Yeah, that's that's a bad thing the Calvinists brought in. Well, I mean that that is actually an interesting question in the course of Christian history. Is that oftentimes in Christendom, loaning at interest was left to the Jews because Christians viewed usury as wrong. So it, there was this weird circumstance where this Old Testament commandment against usury was observed more strictly by the Christians than it was by the Jews. Although the Jews often wouldn't do usury amongst themselves, but they would loan an interest to the Christians and the, you know, so anyway, so for a long time, Christendom had Jews basically be their bankers. And if you wonder why the Jews have still have a lot of influence over the finance industry, it's still kind of a legacy of that, that uh, practice for over a thousand years in Europe. Um, but uh, during the, the Reformation, Calvin will say, actually, that's not true anymore. We can loan at interest. And that helps kickstart capitalism in Europe and sort of starts the marriage between Protestantism and capitalism that's uh, been a pretty effective marriage for the last 500 years. And created the modern day Swiss bank system. Yeah, that's that's also true, right? Why are the Swiss, so, why the Swiss have so many banks? John Calvin. Anyway, and you can, so you can see the origins of a lot of these things back here at the Council of Nicaea that will be continued questions for a long time. All right, um, deacons can't give the Eucharist to presbyters. Presbyters give the Eucharist to deacons. You know, if the bishop is in the church, right, he breaks the bread and then he passes out the wine to the presbyters, then the presbyters pass it out to the deacons, and then the deacons can pass it out to the lay people. It can't be, it can't be the other way around. I don't know, maybe some churches did it that way. And No, it's at least the Catholic Church. What, what occurs is the priest will consecrate the host, and then what will occur is give, give the Eucharist to the deacon who then may... Be giving it to everyone else with the priest. The priest gives himself the, the Eucharist. Absolutely. 
Right. So it ripples down the hierarchy. Correct. Right. You can't have the Eucharist going up the hierarchy. Correct. Right. So that that's what they're deciding here. Presumably there was some churches at that time that did this practice and so they're, you know, deciding against that. All right. Canon nineteen. Here we go. My favorite canon, baby. Sam, Sam, the Holy Church reaches out its loving arms to you. This doesn't look very loving to me. All right. The followers of Paul Samosata must be rebaptized to be readmitted to the Catholic Church, even the clergy. But the clergy can retain their positions if they get rebaptized. If uh, so, we did an episode of Paul on Paul Samosata. Paul Samosata basically is the same theology as me when it comes to the relationship between God and uh, Jesus. And he had been excommunicated slash maybe killed um, from his position, I think, 277 AD, if I'm remembering that correctly. So that's like just under, that's like 45 years or so before the Council of Nicaea. And he had been the Bishop of Antioch, which, as we mentioned, is one of the super bishops, right? And so presumably he still had his followers that were loyal to his teachings and his church to, you know, 45 years later at the Council of Nicaea. And so they're a schismatic group that is not in communion with the current Bishop of Antioch, right? They probably have their own bishop who they think is the real Bishop of Antioch. And then there's the Catholic Bishop, right? So there's this, uh, <laughs> bless you, there's this schism, you know, over in Antioch. And so because they don't believe the right things, unlike the Novationists who are schisms, who are schisming not for Trinitarian reasons, the followers of Paul Samosata who are schisming for Trinitarian reasons need to get rebaptized, and their baptisms are not valid. The church has never liked rebaptizing people, except, you know, maybe those Baptists in the South who, you know, if you if if you have a, a couple come to Jesus moments, you can have a couple baptisms. But they they were very against baptizing more than once because that was sort of seen as crucifying Jesus again, right? Was kind of the idea. So they would not do that unless they really had a very strong reason to not accept those. Baptisms. I, I have to say, Sam, the biblical Unitarians have done a good job of uniting the Arians and the Trinitarians together here in this. So I guess you're, you're a unity candidate, Sam. Right. No one likes Paul Samosata. Neither the Arians nor the anti-Arians, whatever we want to call them, uh, like Paul Samosata. So he needs uh, his followers need to get rebaptized. All right. Boom. Last uh, last canon, twentieth canon of the Council of Nicaea. Prayers on Sunday and on days between Passover and Pentecost are to be made while standing, not kneeling. And this is because this is a time of celebration. So if it's a time of celebration, like a Sunday or the the season between Passover and Pentecost, you're to pray while standing. I guess other times you're to pray while kneeling. And it, so, you, I mean, you can get the, the flavor of all of these canons. There are different practices in different parts of the church. And so they're standardizing it. And you can see this really high respect for clergy, this really high respect for communion, and this high respect that the 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 authority of the different um, clergy needs to be recognized throughout the different parts of the empire. That's sort of the main theme of all of these canons. Pointing out to those who are more of an evangelical bent that the idea that the earliest church didn't see a priesthood is just a phenomenally bad take. Well, I mean, this is 300 years after Jesus was crucified. So there's been some amount of time, right? And we, in our Church Father series, we've seen bishops get more and more and more and more powerful, right? Right. There's been an upward trajectory of the importance of that position in particular. I would beg to differ a little. I mean, someone like Bishop Clement of Rome was seen as very influential and powerful. Again, we're looking at so Clement of Rome and, uh, and others who were presbyters, priests, and bishops, right? They were there right from the beginning. Why they're not as quote-unquote powerful, right? It's because the flocks that they're leading are disparate and small. But the church, think of it this way. I, I'm going to use an evangelical church. You have a, a small church in Gibson City, Illinois. The pastor there may not be powerful. But a, church, a mega church in Atlanta, like Andy Stanley, that pastor is powerful by the nature of the largesse of the people that are attending his church. So it would make sense that the Bishop of Rome, the Bishop of Antioch, and the Bishop of Alexandria are seen as 
more powerful because they are leading a, a, a hierarchy that is substantial. Be like, you know, Jamie Dimon is far more powerful than I am. I'm a, we're both presidents of companies. He just happens to be a president of the largest bank in the world. And I happen to be a president of a, of a firm with about 20 employees. There's just a difference, okay? Power is accreted by size, by siege. By the way, there's no way that we can fight that. It's the nature of what people do. Paul Vanderclay may not like to hear this, but he's a lot more powerful than he thinks he is because his church now isn't 75 people. His church is about 24,000 people. He has at least 1,000 to 2,000 people that attend his church every day when he gets online. I think the reason I bring this out, you're, you're going to have it. Jesus himself created a hierarchy right away. He picked 12 apostles. He had disciples, but the apostles had a higher status, right? Of those apostles, he picked one and said, you're going to be the rock I build my church on. So Peter had a higher, and by the way, we even see this in Acts. Where does Paul go when he wants to make sure he's in, in good with the church? He goes to Jerusalem to talk to those who would be pillars. Correct. The, the hierarchy started right from the beginning. And Paul himself is picking people to be pastors. We see that with Timothy. These are people that he is mentoring to replace him, to, you know, and he's exhorting them and he's encouraging them. And so I, I think that the idea that there's no hierarchy, Protestant misconception, there's always a hierarchy. And Protestants themselves have the hierarchy, even if they don't admit it. It's right there in front of you. Except the Quakers. They're pretty good about it. They, they took that to its logical conclusion. <laughs> Correct. Okay. How many people want to be Quakers? A lot of people on the East Coast like sending their kids to a Quaker school, but... <laughs> Who, who's the most famous Quaker ever? Um, uh, William Penn. Richard w Milhouse Nixon. Oh, huh, huh, oh, I got that wrong. I maybe I might still say William Penn, but I see your point. Um, and so one thing that's not discussed at the Council of Nicaea, the books of the Bible right? Some people have this impression, oh, the Council of Nicaea made every decision that was ever important for the rest of Christian history. No, we, we just got, those were the decisions that they made. We've got two more topics to cover, which is the creed and the date of Easter. But those canons, those 20 canons were basically all of the rules that they made. There are no, there is, there was no discussion as far as we know about which books should be and which, which books should not be in the Bible. There were those discussions going on at the time, right? Eusebius talks about that quite a bit in his writings. So even one of the people at the council spent a lot of time talking about which books should be and not be in the council. Athanasius has his opinions about which books should and not be in the canon, but they didn't discuss it at this council as far as we can tell. There's not a word written that suggests that they even brought it up. So Sam, I'm going to beg off and why don't we do the other part of Nicaea for another show? No, that sounds good. We'll cover the Arian part of the council, the creed, and the date of Easter uh, in part two. Um, and, and maybe that won't need to wait very long to happen. Thanks, everybody.